It's always fascinating to me how God orchestrates a worship service. Uh, Jeff, of course, chose that song and didn't know what I was going to talk about, and it prepares our hearts so well. And also the lectionary, which is something that was chosen years and years ago that most of Christianity follows, which are four texts that you can choose from. Some churches read all four in a worship service. But our text today brought directly on the church. And today is our 60th anniversary. I thought, what a perfect day to talk about the church. So I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to look at verse 19 through the 25th verse. Just six verses of Hebrews near the end of the New Testament. We do not know the author of Hebrews. It's one of the only books that does not tell us who the author is. One of the more complex books as well. And it has some wonderful teaching. As we were walking through the membership class and we were teaching the great creeds of the church, one of the things that jumped out at me that I I don't know if I hadn't noticed it before is that in the oldest of the creeds, the Apostles' Creed, we have the final stanza in which we say in the English language, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. I believe in the church. Now, what do we mean by that? What does it mean to believe in the, tra- in the church in the same creed in which we say things like, I believe in the Father, I believe in the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit? Another way of asking the question might be, does the church have a divine reality similar to that of God Almighty? And if so, or if not, in what way is it the same or similar or different? Is the church the body of Christ in some profound spiritual way. As you know by now, we're celebrating 60 years together as a church. Now, we do not believe that the Catholic, which means universal, the church everywhere that you find it, this body of Christ, we do not believe that the church began only 60 years ago here in Santa Barbara. What we do believe is that we are a part of this universal, eternal, redeeming, transforming gathering of God's people that is not just some human gathering. It's God's people coming together in a profoundly spiritual way in which God is present. He's not only celebrated here, he is here. And we experience this on earth in a way that's profoundly different from any other time in our life. And so when we say we believe in the church, we believe in the supernatural gathering of God's people and what it means when we gather together. Now in saying that, we we are not saying that any church, and certainly not our church, is a perfect church. We are not saying that we're not human beings who are living normal lives, coming together to experience God and helping one another with the difficulties of life, including our own guilt and sin and falling short of what we and God would hope for our lives. But what we are saying is that the church is something so profoundly important that there is nothing else like it on earth. 
In fact, in the Free Methodist tradition, we have a theological statement on the church, and it's a beautiful statement. Uh, Those of you who just took the membership class know that each phrase has deep meaning, not just theologically, but historically, sociologically. It is something that is very uh, profound in its implications for us. And we say the church is created by God. It's the people of God. It's not buildings. Christ Jesus is its Lord and its head. The Holy Spirit is its life and its power. It is both divine and human, heavenly and earthly, ideal and imperfect. It is an organism, not an unchanging institution. It exists to fulfill the purposes of God in Christ. It redemptively ministers to persons. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it so that it should be holy and without blemish. The church is a fellowship of the redeemed and the redeeming, preaching the word of God and administering the sacraments according to Christ's dominical instruction. The free Methodist church, therefore, purposes to be representative of what the church of Jesus Christ should be on earth. So God has been faithful in this. He's been faithful literally for thousands of years. But the birth of the church on Pentecost in the year about 33 began something different on the earth, something the earth had not seen. And it's different from anything the earth will ever see, for it's the body of Christ on the earth. And this church has been faithful in 60 years through different pastors and different groups, different people that have come and some have gone on to be with our Lord and some have moved away. But the question that I want to explore with you today is where the lecture takes us, lectionary takes us. And that is the teaching of Hebrews to look at the other side of the equation. God has been faithful. The church has been faithful. Have we been faithful to the church? And what does that look like to be faithful and to believe in the church. So let's go to Hebrews. We're starting on the 10th chapter, as I said, the 19th verse, and go through the 25th. A call to persevere in faith. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. I keep that open before you, and let's pray. Father, when we stand at these moments where we look back at a faithful church for 60 years, we know that we're standing on a mountaintop and we're looking forward to the next 60 years, to what you want to do, 
And we know that that's true in each of our lives at every birthday, every New Year's, every Christmas, that we celebrate, we're thankful, and we look forward. I would ask today that as we, as a congregation, are thankful but look forward, that you would help us to see both our part and our communal part as a community of yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, there are many things that we could get out of Hebrews. As I said, it's one of the more complex books. I'm just going to draw three aspects of what does our faithfulness to the church look like. First, we see that Hebrews says, we draw near to God with a sincere heart, accepting forgiveness and cleansing through the sacrament of sprinkling and washing, which is the sacrament of baptism. Second, we hold unswervingly to the hope we have in a faithful God, spurring one another on to love and to good deeds. Last, we don't neglect our gathering together, but rather, rather we gather in order to not only draw near to God, not only hold on to the hope, not only to spur one another on, but to encourage one another as a part of our shared life within a worshiping community. So I want to take just a moment to unpack each of those and have a, a personal reflection of, of our response to each of these descriptions of what it means to be faithful to God's church. First, we draw near to God. Now, it is true, and I hear this argument all the time, and it's, it's totally true, that God is everywhere. He's the God of the ocean. He's the God of the waves. He's the God of the mountains. He's the God of the slopes. He's the God of the rivers and the camps, the God of nature. So, yes, of course, when we go into the world and when we experience God in nature, God is there. That's called natural revelation. You cannot be a human being and not feel God when you're out on the waves or you're enjoying the slopes or you're enjoying the world as it is. But God established something very special an actual physical place, his most holy place. It was a place originally set aside in the tabernacle and then on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And it had a sanctuary where the Holy of Holies was, where God resides. When Jesus Christ died, that Holy of Holies was opened. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, the great priest has now started the house of God everywhere he makes his home in the hearts of his people. So we recognize that this isn't a place where we just draw near to God, but in fact, this is a place where God lives and works and has his being, where he's in us. This is God's house, a holy place. Now, this sanctuary was actually built in 1963. But the sanctuary of the Holy Catholic, or Universal Church, was created that moment long ago. And that sanctuary is all over wherever God has established a place for himself. And a sanctuary has been created and the people of God gather. It's unique. When you walk into a sanctuary, you're walking into a place dedicated for meeting with God. A place that's different from just the waves, where the special revelation of Scripture is taught, where the sacraments are shared, where the word and table, as they call it, 
becomes something very real within our lives. So being faithful to God who created this space, we draw near to him with a sincere heart. We accept the baptismal cleansing, the forgiveness of guilt and sin, the cleansing of life. And note that God draws near to us, and therefore we draw near to him. It is very interesting that God is always knocking and always wanting to be with us, but it takes a response. The church is a mutual communal communion community with God in which you choose to be here to have to go to be with God is against the whole nature of what it means to be church we're church because we want to be with God and we want to be with others and it's that communal aspect of it of the freedom of that now, I don't know if you saw this but there's a fascinating finding that came out just this week uh, the Divinity School at the University of Chicago put it out that 21% of self-identified atheists, just think about that statement in, in itself, 21% of self-identified atheists believe in God. Uh, they're not very good atheists, or they don't know what the word means. 10% draw near to God in prayer. 10%. Now, the author, of course, goes on to explain how difficult it is to actually define atheism. And it's an extremely difficult theological and as, as well as religious term. But think about the behavior. Interestingly, as you know, many of them want a church. <laughs> and uh, the church is different than the church in which the Word of God is taught. But they want something more than just their own individual experience of life. Hebrews says that what God asks of us is to draw near with a sincere heart. And he doesn't leave it there. When we draw near, then our guilty consciences become aware of that. He then forgives us as we confess our sin. He then cleanses us of all that's not right. And we signify that by the beautiful sacrament of baptism, where we are cleansed with a pure water. So in the next 60 years, if we are to be faithful to the church we believe in, which is what we say every Apostles and Nicene Creed, if we're to be faithful to the church we believe in, then we are to draw near to God as he has drawn near to us. And as he has established his house, we gather in his home and sit at his table and sit at his feet as he teaches the word of God to us through the various pastors. Now second, to be faithful in the next 60 years, we will hold unswervingly to the hope we have in the faithful promises of God. Now that, that phrase, hold unswervingly, is a wonderful Greek word. It's kateko. And it means literally to be a ship that is tied securely to a dock. It cannot swerve, it cannot, no matter what storms come around it, no matter what tries to beat up against it, it's held securely, hold unswervingly, kateka, to the dock. So we hold to the dock of hope when the storms of life come, because God has promised to see us through. He's our solid rock, as we sang last Sunday, as we stand in the cleft, cleft of that rock. Now, over these 60 years, I can think of no greater description of our shared life than our being held in the love of this ship 
And by the way, the churches were designed to be ships, and the roofs were created as upside-down ships because it was considered a ship of God going on this spiritual journey. So I can think of no greater description of our shared life than our being in the bow of this ship as the storms of life have battered us. We've gone through some hard storms in these 60 years. Individually and corporately, we've gone through some great struggles and losses. And we hold hope, we hold fast to the hope in the promises that are given to us by God. As a pastor, I have to tell you, every time I see this sentiment of Jesus, when he looks down on Jerusalem and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. I feel it deeply when I look out at Santa Barbara and I say, Oh, Santa Barbara, Santa Barbara, how often we've longed to gather your children together into this beautiful, hopeful, loving family of God where we can journey together with you where it's not necessary to face the storms of life alone, battered here and there by all that comes about. We gather you under the wings of God's protective care. That's the church. It's the means whereby God gives us his presence and his hope as we walk through this. Now this second part of, of the call also calls us to consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. We all know how social media presents us with difficulties so often that we're having what's called compassion exhaustion. We cannot feel any more for any more dangers. And just this last week, our hearts are just overwhelmed with the sorrows that are presented to us. It's easy for us to think, well, if we just turned off the TV or if we just got rid of the social media, then, then we would not be numb. But let's realize these words were written 2,000 years ago, a long time before this global communication and immediate communication. These words were written when people didn't know more than just their neighbor, and yet they need to be spurred on toward love and good deeds. The Greek word we translate spur actually means to prod with a pointed stick, to jolt us out of our complacency into action, to have a pointed appeal to do something that needs to be done because it's so easy for us to fall into our own comfort when there are those who are in danger. Wisely, of course, we need to respond to the appeals with understanding, with organization. We need to bring out the best in what needs to be done. But we need to be doing our work. For 60 years, this congregation has actively loved Santa Barbara and the world. It has been my greatest honor to be a part of that work and to see what God does through us as a family of God. From the very beginning until this very week, we've cared for children, for elderly. We've cared for those who are powerless in various ways. 
We've helped support the young and the old and those in many nations throughout the world. We responded to, and I'll be talking about this in the weeks to come, we responded to the Syrian refugees in Jordan, where we have a church that's taking care of over 4,000 people. And our church helped provide food for that group. We have sought justice and mercy. We raise up young lawyers who are going to be doing that professionally. I call us to commit ourselves to another 60 years. The third and the final aspect, of course, is perhaps the simplest command. And yet it is interesting how often people struggle with it. We are not to give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another. I was thinking that in the last 60 years, we met as a family of God formally thousands of times in worship services, tens of thousands of times in Bible studies, and counting and countless times with this informal gathering of people who are doing the work in the community as our people are permeating this community and serve over a hundred organizations in caring for the mission of that work. But there's a problem that comes, and it happens in every church, as we see here. It was true in the first years of the church, 2,000 years ago, and it's still true today in every church, that some are in the habit of not meeting together. And it's fascinating how quickly that can become a habit. Some of us are in the habit of allowing other things to come between us and the commitments that we make, the commitments of our beloved church. In my Wednesday night Bible study, one of our uh, people mentioned to me, you know, it's not a sin to miss church, but it's a bummer. And I thought, you know, that's probably the best description it's not a sin if you are worshiping God and you're in his presence and you take the time on your Sabbath to, to spend time with God. It's not a sin to not come together with your family, but it is a bummer. There's so much that God wanted to do and could have done had we been in the habit of being with his people and regularly in his place, in his house, at his table. And so I call us again to commit ourselves for the next 60 years that we will be faithful in meeting together, creating strong and vibrant habit of living, living this life with each other, for we need each other. As it said, you don't lower the anchor for the first time in the midst of a storm. You lower the anchor in calm so you know how to and are prepared to lower the anchor when the storm comes. And it's going to come. It comes in every person's life. There's no exception to that. And to walk it alone is, is unnecessary. We believe in the church, the holy church of God. Let's be a people in this place living by his hope and his love for the next 60 wonderful years of God. Let's spend time with him.